our Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We pick up where we left off and we end our little series through contentment. It's been three sermons that we've studied this issue of contentment. We started by looking at really a theology of contentment or really the opposite, what contentment is not. We looked at what brings about discontentment. We looked at the root of discontentment. And there would be two things, lust and coveting. Lust is one of the biggest enemies of contentment. It's a strong desire, a longing of the soul for what will give it to light. We've talked about that it's not a bad thing in and of itself. Uh, lust becomes bad when it's attached to something that you are wanting that is wrong. It's a strong desire. Jesus lusted to eat the Passover with his disciples. Paul lusted to be in heaven with Jesus and uh, depart from this world. But when it's attached to something that is wrong, it is wrong desire. It is a strong, a strong craving that turns out to be wrong. Coveting was the other issue. Coveting is just literally wanting more. And ultimately, it's being dissatisfied with what God has given to us and ultimately with God himself. So the opposite of being a covetous person is contentment in God. Last week, we looked at really three questions. What is contentment? What does it look like? And how do we learn to be content? We looked at these because we hadn't really gone through the passage. We just kind of set up a theology of discontentment, a theology of what that looks like to covet and to lust. So we went last week into the text, verses 10 through 20, to see Paul model for us really five different areas of what it looks like to be content. We defined contentment as this, really using Jeremiah Bros's book, uh, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He says it this way, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So contentment is a delighting in and a submission to God's providence in your life. Another Puritan pastor said it this way, a state of mind. Contentment is a state of mind in which one's desires are confined to his lot, whatever they may be. Contentment is saying, I have enough in Jesus. I am content in Christ. Paul modeled that for us last week. We saw it, five different things that we saw. A contented person is confident in God's providence. Paul says in Philippians 4.10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. So you wanted to help, and I needed that help, but you couldn't get it to me. But God was provident in that. His providence is totally fine. I submit to it. I am confident in it. He'll bring it when he wants me to have it. Secondly, a contented person is satisfied with a little. Satisfied with little. Verse 11, he's not speaking from want. He's learned to be content in whatever circumstance he is in. A contented person is satisfied with little. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Number three, a contented person is not dependent on on his circumstances. I can do anything. I can live in humble means. I can live in prosperity. My contentment is not dependent upon my circumstances. Number four, a contented person is strengthened by divine power. 
That's verse 13 that we saw. We'll look at it again this morning. But I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do, I can live in contentment in every situation, in every circumstance, no matter where I am, no matter what I'm going through, because Jesus is my strength. And finally, number five, a contented person is preoccupied with the well-being of others. They're preoccupied with the well-being of others. So we know what contentment is. We know what it looks like. And we took some time just um, to start by saying, how do we apply this? What does it look like for us? How can we do this? How can we learn to be content? If we know what it is and we have seen it modeled, how do we apply it? How can we learn to be content? And I wanted to just spend the remainder of our time this morning. It will be brief because we will be celebrating communion together this morning. But just four attitudes, four attitudes that come from this text that I would encourage you and my own soul and your soul as well with how we can learn to be content. What can we do today? How do we start applying these things, putting these things into practice? We all struggle with coveting things, with lusting and craving after things that we don't have. So how can we learn the secret of being content? Paul said he learned it. He just wasn't born with it. He had to learn it. How can we learn it? Four different ways. Number one, we must learn to find our ultimate joy in God. If we are to be content, we have to learn how to find our ultimate joy in God. Ultimate joy in God. Verse 10, Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord. I rejoiced in the Lord. I'm not rejoicing in my circumstances. I'm not rejoicing in the trials that are going on, the the actions, the environment, the culture, the context. That's not what is making me happy. I'm rejoicing in the Lord. I'm rejoicing in him because he is unchanging. He is holy. He is faithful as we have sung. If we place our joy in something that we can lose, money, If we place our joy in, let's say, a good job that we have, we have a great job that provides for our families, and we place our happiness in that, that is what we rely on to give us happiness, to give us joy, to bring us a sense of satisfaction. What happens when the economy tanks? What happens when we start to lose jobs? What happens when your boss calls you into his office and says, I'm sorry, we're going to have to let you go? Now, what once gave you happiness is gone, and you have to find another place to find that happiness. You have to look somewhere else to be satisfied. That's why I love where Paul starts. I rejoice in the Lord, and placing the anchor of your joy in the character of who God is, it's never going to move, because God never changes. God never changes. We read that this morning. He does not change like a shadow would shift with the sun. He doesn't change. And so Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord. Though I suffer great, incredible persecution, my circumstances are enormously difficult, I can rejoice because God doesn't change. Turn to Habakkuk chapter 3. This is what Pastor Saeed was mentioning. If you go to Habakkuk, chapter 3, similar to Jeremiah, as we studied a little bit briefly in Family Bible Hour, Jeremiah is asking God, why? Um, 
Jeremiah and Lamentations is all about Jeremiah asking God, why? You made a covenant with your people, and you have just destroyed your people using the Babylonians. Why? Is your promise gone? Are you going to stop being faithful to what you claimed you were going to do? Habakkuk asks the same question. God, where are you? What are you doing? Can I trust in you? Can I hope in you? Drop down to verse 17. This is the end of the matter. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17. After all is said and done, after God says, yes, the people will be destroyed, yes, I have a plan for them, you must trust me. This is what Habakkuk says. Though the fig tree should not blossom, though there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. Okay, so he has no food, no drink, no commerce, no way to sell or trade, no job, no transportation. He has nothing. And he says this, verse 18, emphatically, yet, despite everything in verse 17, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will find my joy in who God is. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Why? Verse 19, he is my strength. He has made my feet like hind's feet or the the feet of um, an ibex or a mountain goat that can literally hang on the side of a cliff and just shove its claws, shove its hooves into a rock and, and walk almost sideways, almost completely perpendicular to the cliff and not fall because God gave them these amazing hooves that don't feel any pain and you just slam it into the crevice of a rock and I can just keep on going. It's like natural mountain climbing goats. They're crazy cool and Habakkuk says, that's how you made my feet. I will not fail. I will not falter. Everything around me is being destroyed, but I have a secure anchor in my God because he doesn't change. He doesn't change. I wonder if we could say the same thing that Habakkuk says. Maybe you could if your fig tree wasn't blossoming. Oh, well, I don't have figs today. But put it into your context. What is it that God might take away from you that you would say, okay, I'm struggling to find my joy. I'm struggling to exult in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk says it's not based on my circumstances because I find my ultimate joy in God. This does not mean that circumstances can't bring you joy and happiness. They can. That's great. God gave us the gift of uh, amazing circumstances and friends and family and things like that to enjoy but never to place our ultimate hope and satisfaction and joy in. Turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, I believe, helps us in seeing this picture of a man who really struggled with being content. Psalm 73, verse 1. This is Asaph, and he says this, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But, verse 2, he says, God's good. I know God is good, but for me, I struggle to believe that. That's what he's going to say. For me, I knew he was good, but I didn't really believe that. I was struggling. For me, verse 2, my feet came close to stumbling. There's Habakkuk's language, right? I didn't stumble. I had those feet, those uh, mountain goat feet that can just stick into the rock. I, I didn't slip. I didn't falter. Asaph says, I struggled. I stumbled. I almost fell because I wasn't placing my trust and hope and joy in God. I was placing it in other things. What was it? Verse 3. I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He was coveting what they had. 
what do they have? Well, there's no pain in their death. That's not true. Their body is fat. I don't know if we're going to covet that. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garments of violence covers them. Their eyes bulges from fatness. There's, that's bad fatness. The, the imaginations of their heart run riots. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak on high. They've set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. He's saying, I struggled because here are these people getting away with murder and God's not dealing with them and they're prospering. Maybe I should just throw in the towel, stop following Jesus and follow after these people. They just look at what they want. They go get it. Therefore, verse 10, his people return to this place. The waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the most high? Does he see? Does he know? Behold, these are the wicked. And always at ease, they will have increased in wealth. Surely in vain, I have kept my heart pure. Look at where he's going. He's saying, it was, it was pointless for me to stay pure. Back in verse 1, he says, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but God's not being good to me. It was pointless that I tried to be pure in heart. It's been in vain. I washed my hands in innocence. End of verse 13. It's been in vain. I've been righteous. I've obeyed and no good has come from it. This man is obviously struggling, right? Because we know that good has come from it. We know that the the wicked aren't as in, in an awesome place as he thinks they are. Even some of the language that he uses, always, never, things like that. No, that's not true. But he's struggling. He's struggling. He says, verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, if I will say exactly what I'm saying to everyone around me, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. I'm struggling. You, you say you're good, but I don't know if you're good. How do I know? What do I do? Verse 17, there's a turn. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, until I stood before God, saw his holiness, saw his word, heard it taught, heard it preached, then I perceived their end. Then I knew everything that I'm coveting won't last. Everything that I'm coveting, look at where it leads. Verse 18, you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. So he sees the truth. Okay, I shouldn't be coveting this because I know the, the end of the wicked is not good. Verse 21, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within... Then I was senseless and arrogant. I was like a beast before you. Here's his kind of turn. I, I can't believe what I was thinking, how I was acting, what I was saying. And then he says this, verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. And this is where he comes full circle. I want everything that the wicked have. I, I'm coveting, I'm lusting, I want those things, and then I'll be happy. I'm not happy with just obeying and following God. He's not satisfying me. I want more. He sees this isn't true, this isn't real. He goes back to the truth when he enters the sanctuary of God, and then he says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Verse 2, he was. But he's come full circle to say, no, no, no. 
I know the end of wicked people. I know the end of everything. I know that the things that I'm coveting after will disappear and fade away. So therefore, I have nothing but you. You're everything I have, similar to Habakkuk's language. You're all I have, and with you alone, I can be happy and content. Verse 26, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. You're all I need. You are what satisfies me. They get fat on food and wine. I am satisfied by God. I am satisfied by God. Verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you will perish. You are near to me. I'm, I'm not far away. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. Asaph comes full circle to say, you know what? It's not the things that I'm wanting that will satisfy me. If I have God and that's all I have, I will be content. We need to find our ultimate joy in God. Why do we find joy in other things? Why do we find Specifically, let's say money. Why is money such a huge thing that people covet after? They want something that they don't have. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. I find this interesting. These are things that you read. I was reading this in my devotions this week. And these are things that you just see the Bible coming alive and teaching you things. As I'm preparing to study on contentment, preach about contentment, I'm just reading for devotions, and I read this familiar passage, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. So don't covet, don't have a craving for money, be free from the love of money. Why? What? What do people enjoy about money? I think sometimes it's you know, popularity, friends, it's um, status symbols, things like that for sure. But I know a big one is security. I have a, a, a safety net. When bad times come, I'm okay. I find my security, my protection. I find my hope in my wealth. And listen to how the writer of Hebrews says this. You need to be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Why? Because God himself has said, I am better than money. I will satisfy you. What's the alternative of free from the love of money? What does he say? I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Don't love money because God's with you all the time. It doesn't seem like it equals, but listen to what he says. So that, verse 6, we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? I don't need money to be content or to find a, a safety security blanket that now I am free from fear. God says, I'm with you. Trust me. Hope in me. He is our helper, not our money. Our money will not ultimately help us. It will fail us. God is our helper. So how do we find our joy in God? Can I just give you two things? How do we find our joy in God? Number one, we invest in heaven's currency. Invest in heaven's currency. I've been to the Philippines three times now, and every time you change money over, you get money. I believe it's pesos, if I remember correctly. Get money over there. 
and you try and spend all of it when you're done. You try and you change, you exchange your money, you get this new uh, currency, and you try and make sure you don't come home with any of it. Why? Because it's pointless. It's useless here. It doesn't do anything. That's why you just give it away to people. Here you go. You can't, you can't buy anything with it. The same thing is true with our money in the eternal state. So many people are trying to amass billions of dollars thinking that we'll exchange it when we get to heaven and it'll still work for us when we're there. First of all, you won't get to take any money with you into heaven, but even if you could, it wouldn't work there. So amassing money here makes no sense there. So the next pastoral question we have to ask is, what kind of wealth do we amass then? What are we working for? What is heaven's currency? What is heaven's currency? Turn to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 6 tells us what heaven's currency is. Verse 3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But what is heaven's currency? Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment because we've brought nothing into the world so we can't take anything out of it either. Godliness is the currency of heaven. That is what we should be investing in. Invest in heaven's currency. What is most valuable about godliness is that it is the character of God lived out through us, lived out in us in such a way that others see it and see uh, the, the good works that our Father has given to us and glorify our Father who is in heaven. So we need to invest in heaven's currency and not in our own financial currency here, our own money in America. Number two, we need to meditate on the surpassing value of Jesus Christ above all things. Meditate on the surpassing value of Jesus Christ above all things. If you are to find your ultimate joy in God, you need to invest in heaven's currency. Don't invest in the currency of this world. And secondly, meditate on the surpassing value of Jesus Christ above all else. Don't place all of your hope and happiness and joy in the things that this world has to offer. Don't invest in the things that this world has to offer to give you that joy. Invest in God, knowing that he is better than anything this world has to offer. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3, 8, whatever was gained to me, I count it as loss in comparison to the, the greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. That is what I want. A question for us. If you could only have Jesus or you could have anything else in this world, if you could only have Jesus or you could have anything else that this world has to offer, which would you choose? The question is, why would you choose that? It's because you believe one of those things that you choose ultimately has the ability to satisfy your soul in a deeper, greater way than the other could. We need to find our ultimate joy in God. Number two, the, the second attitude that we must have if we are to live out this contentment, we need to fix our paradigm regarding our circumstances. 
We need to fix our paradigm regarding our circumstances. We need to find our ultimate joy in God, and we need to fix our paradigm regarding our circumstances. You guys know it in verses 11 and 12 in chapter 4. It doesn't matter. Whatever circumstance I'm in, I'm content. Understand that our circumstances are never the cause of our discontentment. Our circumstances are never the cause of our discontentment. They are just revealing the discontentment that is in our hearts. We always think, if only my circumstances were different, then I'd be content. This is what we must change. We must change this kind of thinking. Don't blame your circumstances for the discontentment in your heart. Don't look at your circumstances and say, oh, if only. No, no, no. Don't blame them. It's in here. Your circumstances just bring it out. Paul said he learned to be content in any circumstance. So can we. So can we. We must, we must preach to our own souls that there never is a perfect circumstance, ever. Sin taints every circumstance. Well, there's never a perfect circumstance where we can be content, where everything is going our way. Because of sin, something will always be wrong or difficult or painful. Every circumstance you and I face will always have some lack of something and some abundance of something. So we need to fix our paradigm regarding our circumstances. I think here's the best way to say it. Contentment and circumstances are unrelated. They are. And we need to fix our thinking about that. Number three, and we've got to keep moving for sake of time. Number three, if we are to find our satisfaction and contentment in God, we need to find our ultimate joy in him. We need to fix our paradigm regarding our circumstances in order to be content. And number three, we need to focus our attention on others. Paul does this with the Philippians. He says, um, you all have, have ministered to my needs and I praise God for you and I, I desire that you receive even the greater gift. Thank you for giving me the, the gift. I didn't need it, but now that you've given it to me, uh, your uh, credit increases in heaven. You are given gifts in heaven. We also see it from the Philippians. They've been giving money over and over and over again. They lacked an opportunity, probably didn't have time, probably didn't have money, probably didn't have some way to get it to him. And yet they say, I want to provide for Paul. I want to take care of him. They're always thinking about other people. Here's the key. When we spend time thinking about ourselves, we will struggle with contentment. When we spend time thinking about ourselves, we will struggle with contentment. So how do we combat that? We do what the Philippians did. We do what Paul does. We give away. We give away the things that we have. We give it away. If we're always thinking about ourselves and thus we are always discontent, then we combat it by giving away. Giving it away. Focus your attention on others. Giving, by the way, is one of the five things that Scripture commands a church to do when it gathers. The five things that Scripture explicitly commands a church to do are praise God, pray, read the Word, teach the Word, and give. Why? Because giving is absolutely essential and greatly beneficial to the believer. Absolutely essential and greatly beneficial to the giver and the believer who would say, you know what, I'm going to fix my attention on others. Solomon said that in Proverbs 11, verses 24 through 25, there is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. There is one who withholds what is justly due and yet it results only in want. He sums it up by saying, the generous man will be prosperous and he who waters will himself be watered. 
later in chapter 19, verse 17, he says, One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and God will repay him for his good deed. Proverbs 22, verse 9, He who is generous will be blessed. And Proverbs 28, 27, He who gives to the poor will never want. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, Paul said it very similarly. He says, I say this, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The reality is serving others and giving to others and meeting others' needs builds your credit in heaven, right? Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So as you give away, you amass treasure in heaven. It's not about being prosperous on this earth. It's about showing forth the glory of God, saying, He is my treasure and my prize. Paul says to the Philippians, I want you to meet my needs so that your credit account goes up in heaven. And the Philippians say, we're glad to do that. We're glad to do that. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the reasons why we need to be humble enough to share our needs with each other. A lot of people don't like doing that. I don't have a need. I'm fine. Don't worry about it. I'll figure it out. But if we don't share the needs that we have, and I'm not talking about handouts, I'm talking about genuine needs. If we don't share the needs that we have with one another, then we won't be able to allow others to meet that need and by meeting that need be blessed all the more in heaven. We're robbing each other of opportunities to give God glory by saying, I can do it, I, I don't have a need, I'm, I'm okay. We need to focus our attention on others if we are to live contented lives. Find your ultimate joy in God. Fix your paradigm regarding your circumstances. Focus your attention on others. And fourthly and finally, find your strength in Jesus. Verse 13, we, we talked about it last week. I can do all things through Jesus who gives me strength. I can do it all. The reality of this verse is that only God is the one who can change our desires, our affections. Jesus is the only one who can give us new desires and new delights. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Turn to John chapter 15. We'll end here. John chapter 15. How do we do this? How do we find our strength in Jesus? What does that look like? Do we have to go hunting for it with a magnifying glass? Is it lost somewhere? How do we find our strength in Jesus? Can I just say it this way? You abide in him. You abide in him. John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, Jesus says. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So do this. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? You can do nothing. Abide, remain. It's like a perfect example, a branch in a tree that's bearing fruit. You can't take a branch off of a lemon tree, cut the branch off, pull it away, stick it in the ground and say, bear fruit. It needs to stay abiding, remaining where all of the source of nutrients come from. It needs that. So too, how often do we say, I want to be content, I want to learn how to do this, 
and you walk away from Christ and you say, I can do it on my own strength. We can do nothing apart from Christ. How do we abide in him? Sorry to get a wand on you, but it really is. Read the Bible. Pray. This is where God speaks to us. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in your truth. Thy word is truth. How do we abide? This is where we receive the nutrients from God. And as we pray and ask him, he grows in us desires for himself, his desires for us. What's the end of all this? The promise in verse 19. Our anchor rests in the promise that God will supply every need that we have according to his riches. Now, if I were to say to you, look, focus your attention on others. Give away what you have. Be content. Don't worry, because I will provide if you ever have a need. If I were to give you that promise, that promise lasts up until maybe like $3 at McDonald's, right? The extent with which I am able to meet your needs is very, very small. But when God says, I will supply all of your needs according to my riches in Christ Jesus. How much money does God own? He owns the worlds. He owns the universe. He owns the galaxies. The reality is you do not have a need that will not be met in Christ Jesus. You do not have a need that will not be met in Christ Jesus. You say, how? How can that be true? Because for me, experientially, it's not. Maybe you've had your electricity shut off before. Maybe you weren't able to pay your mortgage. You say, I have needs that were not met. And here's the reality of this verse. In God's economy, which is completely different than ours, in God's economy, that wasn't a need at that moment. That wasn't a need at that moment. God will provide for it when it becomes a need. I think that's one of the the greatest challenges of the Christian life, to figure out, to align what you believe is a need to what God says is a need. That's, That's maturity. In God's economy, in those difficult situations, those are situations that are working for your good. Psalm 84, 11, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And that includes poverty, that includes suffering, that includes death. They are all gifts from God to those who walk uprightly. He takes care of us in ways that we would never understand. And that's the reality of the cross. We didn't know that we needed the cross. If God had waited for us to say, you know what, I know now that I cannot earn my way to heaven. Never would have happened. That's why God says, you know what, I have a way to meet a need you don't even know you have. A need that your sin creates because your sin separates you from Jesus, separates us from God. All we have in store for us as sinners is the wrath of God. And so God says, I will meet that need. Jesus will satisfy the wrath that is due to us, that is in store for us, so that we can walk away free. And live contented in the abundance that Jesus provides. That's what we celebrate when we come to the table. So what I want to do is I want to to just sing one song that will remind us of our need for Jesus. And as we sing, let's remind ourselves as we're singing these words, without Jesus we have nothing. Not just no salvation. We have nothing at all. And with him... We have salvation and everything else that comes along with being sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Father, thank you that we can be content 
knowing that we find our strength in Jesus, knowing that you met a need so long ago that we didn't even know we had. In eternity past, you met a need that one day we would come to realize only by your grace. So we cling to you now as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the way in which you saved our souls. We cling to you, our rock, our joy, our hope, and our peace.